Well, good day, friends, and welcome to another quick Equip podcast. This is where we cover some of the content that we did at our Equip Theology class last Sunday, and this might be helpful for you if you were there and just want to review what we looked at, or if you missed a week, or you're checking out what we do at Equip, then this will just give you a bite-sized format of what we've been doing. Now, we've been covering kind of the first 600 years odd of church history, and we began on Sunday just with a quick review of what we did a couple of weeks ago. And it's worth us just going back through this again, because there was such important stuff that we covered when we were together a couple of weeks prior. Uh, we covered uh, what happened at a couple of councils where the big discussion point was, is Jesus God? Is he really divine? And you might remember that there were two people on either side of, of that argument. Arius on the one side who said that Jesus is only like God, so he's of like substance with God the Father, not same substance. Uh, now Arius holds to a position called homoiousios, the Greek word for like substance or like essence, whereas on the other side was Athanasius and a number of other uh, Christian men who held to homoousios same substance or same essence and uh, you can go back and look at the notes from a couple of weeks ago to dig back into some of the other things that happened there um, but the big picture was that at the council of nicaea in 325 and then the council of constantinople nicaea in 381 and all the debates and all the exiles and all the difficulties that happened between those two things the church settled on homo Christ is the same substance as God the Father. That is, he is fully God. He is fully divine. So that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. What we looked at on Sunday just gone was sort of the, the runway from 381 up to another council in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon another really important one. And we looked at this through the lens of two issues that came up between 381 and 451. The first issue was the identity of the Holy Spirit. So much like the identity of Christ came into question, is he fully God? How should we understand him uh, in the way that the scriptures have presented him? Uh, the same question came up for the Holy Spirit. Should we think of the Holy Spirit as God? Or should we think of the Holy Spirit more as a force uh, or as a, a being with personality? So those are actually two different questions, sorry. Uh, the Spirit as God or less than God or the Spirit as a, a force or as more of a personality? So two questions there. Uh, worth thinking, how would you answer those questions? So if you can remember back to what we did on Sunday, what were some of the, the scriptures that we used? What were some of the reasons that we thought through for, for why the Spirit is God and why the Spirit is a, a person, that is, having personality? Even though he doesn't have a body, uh, he is a person in the sense of having the attributes of personality, a will, emotions, uh, the ability to, to take actions that are his own actions. That is to say, the Spirit is not an it, but a, a he. So I just wonder if you can remember, and you might even like to pause the recording for a moment and just think through, what were some of the scriptures? What were some of the reasons? 
I'm just going to take you through a couple of those now. Uh, so some of the, the reasons for which we said the Spirit is God, first of all. Uh, we looked at Genesis, how he's present and active in creation. He was hovering over the surface of the deep. And also active in creating man and woman. So you might remember in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make men in our image. Now, sometimes we talk about the royal plural. You know how the queen might say, our decree is that we, rah, 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 by which she's saying, I, in representation of the royal household. Uh, now, the royal plural wasn't a thing in Hebrew language or at the time when Genesis was written by Moses. So uh, it's not a royal plural here. It's, it's really authentically God speaking as a, a trinity. Um, and so really it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who are involved in creation and active in creation. We also have... God the Holy Spirit equipping people for roles of ministry in the book of Exodus and, and 1 Samuel. The New Testament is probably more obvious when it comes to the Spirit's identity as God. We get the, the designation the Holy Spirit for the first time, and that's actually used over a hundred times across the scriptures, uh, clearly implying divinity. We also have the Spirit active at Jesus' baptism, uh, anointing him for ministry in concert with the Father. That's in Matthew 3.16. Really interesting one in Acts 5. You might remember this, that uh, Ananias lies to Peter uh, about um, how he's going to use certain funds that he said he donated to the church. He didn't actually donate everything to the church, but said that he did. And Peter says that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next breath says you have lied to God. So really he's saying you've lied to the Holy Spirit who is God. Uh, verse 3 and verse 5 are the, the two ones there in Acts 5. But probably most crucially, we see the Spirit described as the imminent presence of God within us. That is, God here with us and in us. We see this especially across John's Gospel. And you might want to just look up John chapter 17, verse 20 to 21. Uh, this is in opposition to an error of theology made in modalism, or what's sometimes called Sabellianism, named after its sort of founder, Sibelius. Uh, in modalism, there is one God who just wears three masks. So the Spirit isn't God, he's just sort of one reflection of God. Uh, so maybe the Father interacts with creation at one time, and then the Son at another, and then the Spirit at another. Uh, you don't have three persons, you just have one person with multiple masks, if you want. So in that view, the Spirit isn't God, but just sort of part of God, a reflection of God. But what we see, in fact, is that he is fully God. And he also is a distinct person of the Trinity. Um, so we see this particularly across the New Testament, where Jesus calls him the paraclete in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. Uh, a combination of, of two Greek morphemes, two Greek word parts. Para, meaning alongside and Kaleo, or kalete, meaning uh, sort of called. So this is the, the called beside one for the believer. And English translations uh, treat this in a number of different ways, this parakletos, paraclete. Um, sometimes he's called the comforter, sometimes the helper, sometimes the counsellor, sometimes the advocate. They're all just ways of reflecting what this word is, uh, that the spirit is person of the Trinity that comes to comfort, counsel, advocate, help us 
in the absence of Jesus' physical presence. So remember, Jesus says that I'm going, but I'll leave you a helper, advocate, counsellor, uh, comforter, the paraclete. So there's just one example. Uh, we also see that, that the spirit can be grieved by a disobedience, uh, that he has a will with which he guides people. Uh, he intercedes for us with groanings. Uh, these are all, of course, uh, examples of the spirit having personality. We also talked about how Jehovah's Witnesses and some others deny the personhood of the Spirit. They say that the word used for Spirit in the New Testament, which is the Greek word pneuma, um, if you think pneumatic is, is a word we have in English, air-powered, uh, pneuma is, is spirit or wind or air. So they say this word pneuma is grammatically a neuter noun. Um, we in English don't have genders of nouns, but if you've learnt any French or Spanish or Latin, you'll be familiar that in some languages they do have genders. Uh, the, the table, la table, um, uh, the, the cat, le chat, I think is, is right. I, I never learnt any French, so don't take my advice. But, um, you know, sometimes some, some nouns are designated as male and some as female or masculine and feminine. Has nothing to do actually with the identity of the object. The table itself isn't female, it just has a feminine designation in the language. And that's the problem with the Jehovah's Witness argument in calling uh, the spirit neuter. Saying, well, it doesn't have a masculine or, or feminine uh, attachment to it, so it's, it's just neuter, it's just an it. But that's not true. Um, in, in Greek, the masculinity, femini femininity or neuterness of the noun has no bearing on its actual meaning. Um, point in question would be that Ecclesia, which is the word for church, is a feminine noun. And of course, we wouldn't say that church is just for females or that church is female. Uh, church is just the, the gathered body of, of believers, right? Uh, both male and female. And so you, you similarly couldn't say that the spirit pneuma is just neuter. It's just an it on that basis. So these two things, that the Spirit is God and a person, were, were really ratified at the Council in 381, Constantinople Nicene Council. The other one we looked at, which um, takes a little bit more time to settle, is, uh, is the question of, of Christ and his human and divine natures. So we can agree that Christ is fully human. We can also agree that he is fully divine. As we've seen, the Council of Constantinople Nicaea in 381 really does settle on the truth that Christ is fully God. And for centuries prior, the church really had settled that he's fully man as well. Uh, remember how we looked at docetism and Gnosticism in previous weeks? Uh, the church really actively repudiated those heresies that claimed that Jesus was not really a man. He didn't really come in the flesh. So no, he's fully God and fully man. But how can we speak of him as fully God and fully man? Does he have both a human nature and a divine nature? Or does his divine nature take precedence over his human nature? Does he have one nature that's actually sort of a combination of the two, divine-human? On Sunday, we looked at three different views that were wrong and one view that was right and was eventually ratified at Chalcedon in 451. So uh, those three views, just going to quickly go over them here. Apollinarianism, 
Again, you don't really need to know the name, but if you want to be able to Google it, it can be helpful. Apollinarianism is the view where uh, Jesus' divine nature sort of replaced what would have been a human soul in him. So he wasn't human down to his bones, if you want to put it that way. He didn't have a human soul or a human psyche. He was sort of divine in those areas, but did have a human body. The problem with that, of course, is that if Jesus wasn't fully human, then he couldn't represent us as fully human sinners. He couldn't actually be our fully human sacrifice, our mediator in that sense. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus said that what was not assumed was not healed. So that is, if Christ didn't assume full humanity, he couldn't heal humans. Nestorianism was the second of, of these heresies. Uh, this is the idea that two separate persons exist in Christ. Really weird to think through, but, but one of those persons is human, and one of those persons is divine, and they're sharing the same body. Now, uh, it's really complex, this, this Nestorian idea. Uh, you might like to Google it and just uh, see a, a bit of that complexity if you're interested. Here's the punchline, though. Um, if Mary, who is a human, gave birth to God, then we might have to conclude that Mary, in fact, was some kind of goddess. Um, one person at class, I think it was Jenny, actually brought up that uh, the Roman Catholic Church sort of has some kind of similarity in this, in, in the doctrine of immaculate conception, which is the idea that Mary was sinless when she gave birth to Christ. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's kind of a shade similar. For Bear, Mary to give birth to God, maybe she had to be somewhat divine herself. And so Nestorians rightly rejected that and said, well, what that means is that Mary couldn't have given birth to God. She had to give birth to just a man who at the very instant that he was born also became God. Um, or, or took on his godness, if you want to put it that way. And so that, they came up with this fanciful idea that, that Jesus is both human and God as two separate persons, born as a human person, but adds in a, a God person. Um, it's sort of rooted in the idea that, that God can't suffer as well. So how, how can we explain Christ's suffering? Well, only the person part of him, the human person part of him suffered but the God person part of him didn't because God doesn't suffer. So a very strict divide between those two. The problem with Nestorianism is that um, it's really based on this assumption that for Mary to give birth to God, she had to have been godlike, uh, sinless or, or something. But that's not the way that the scriptures actually present Mary to us. They present her as human with uh, the conception of the Holy Spirit, if you want. So a human birth, but with divine agency. That doesn't require Mary to be divine or to be sinless. Uh, and similarly, we don't need to say that Christ can't suffer because God doesn't suffer. Uh, we can actually say that, no, in, in his humanity, he did suffer. Um, that doesn't preclude him in his divinity still suffering. It's the person of Christ who suffers, possessing both a human and divine nature. Uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431 really shot this one down, and so there was nothing left to it. Um, it's a warning for us, though, not to sort of be led by, let's say, philosophical conjecture. You know, just ideas that we have 
about what the Bible might lead us to. Oh, you know, for, for God to be born, Mary had to be something divine or sinless. Well, no, that's not the way that the scriptures present us. Uh, we can actually take God at his word that Mary didn't need to be divine or sinless and trust that even though it's not all spelt out for us, Christ was born fully human, fully divine. So we don't want to actually go too far beyond what Scripture says in our speculation. Uh, very quickly, the third heresy that we looked at was something called Eutychianism. Try saying that fast a few times. Uh, this is the idea that uh, Jesus is one person, but also only had one nature. A divine human nature, if you want. I say that nice and quickly. Divine human. It's, it's both together. They're inseparable. So a bit like a, a drop of ink into water. It's like his humanity is immersed into his divinity. But again, this sort of denies his full humanity. Uh, he can't really fully represent us if he's drawing on his own divine resources to resist temptation and resist sin. He has to actually be fully human in his resistance of sin, drawing on the Spirit's uh, helpful, uh, helping and, and enabling uh, and the resources that the Father gives, just as we do. Uh, he can't sort of have a, a secret shortcut or a secret advantage in being divine. Uh, Wayne Grudem points out that when Jesus came, he didn't lose his divinity. He veiled his divinity with humanity. Uh, and that implies, of course, that he stood the tests against sin fully human, uh, not as this sort of dual-natured being, uh, as in dual-natured, as in human-divine, as the same nature. Uh, in the end, where the church ended up was, was deciding that Jesus has one person, the person of Christ, but two natures, God and man. And one doesn't subsume the other, as in Apollinarianism, where you have mostly divine but just a bit human. Uh, actually, he's 100% God and 100% human. Now, that's bad maths because it adds up to 200%, of course. Uh, but Christ is unique in this way. He can be and is fully human and fully God. The technical term for this is the hypostatic union. So again, just something for you to Google. Hypostatic union, H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Um, and just to finish on a really brilliant statement, I think, by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this was written in 1646. You might like to look it up. Uh, they claimed that uh, two whole, perfect and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. You can hear that there. 100% God, 100% man, but one person, Jesus Christ. It finishes saying, the only mediator between God and man. If he's not fully God, he cannot pay for our sin. And if he is not fully man, he cannot represent us as human sinners. So Christ, being one person, fully God and fully man, uniquely qualifies him as the mediator between God and man. And what a wonderful reflection that draws us to the glory of Jesus Christ. I hope that that gives you uh, uh, some impetus for your prayer, some impetus for your Bible reading as you go into the week and impetus for you as you worship and know Jesus. If you have any questions from this recording or from our time on Sunday, please drop me a line or give me a call. 
Uh, love to chat them through. Thanks, guys.